Well, it's good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors at the church here. Um, it's good to have you. Um, sounds a bit cheesy, but it's good to have Jesus too. He's, he's, uh, he's always around, but he's, uh, he's been around doing some particularly special stuff uh, for us lately, and uh, he's been busy at work, and um, so uh, I look forward to what he's going to do today. I, I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. We were a very devout family. There was Bible reading, there was devotions, there was praying. Uh, we believed in the sovereignty of God. He was big, he was powerful, he ruled over everything, and I still believe that. But somewhere along the way, uh, my understanding of God's sovereignty got a little skewed. Um, it morphed into a kind of uh, what I would call theological fatalism. God was in control and uh, he would do whatever he pleased, which is actually what the scriptures uh, teach. Um, and, and so I ended up in these situations where there was never an issue about God's capability that he could do something. Uh, it, it became a bit of a question about whether he wanted to do something, whether it was his will to do something. And I figured that uh, if he wanted to, he would. And uh, if he didn't want to, he wouldn't. And he didn't need me to be that much involved in the whole situation. So I didn't pray much about situations. Um, I didn't talk to him that much and I never asked him for anything big because he just does whatever he wants to do anyway. Um, I never said it because you're kind of not supposed to say it. But whenever I was faced with something big, I had this feeling inside of me that he could do something about it, but he didn't actually want to do anything about it, at least not in the moment anyway. We've been working our way through John chapter 11 uh, at the church here and um, it's a story of the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, The story goes that Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother has died um, and Jesus heads to meet them in their hometown as he gets close to the hometown. uh, Martha hears that he's coming, she goes out and she engages Jesus in some conversation And, and what you actually see in the conversation is a little bit of the dynamic that I just shared about in my story. Uh, Jesus says to Martha that your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. There's, there's some kind of certainty about the future, but very much, not, not very much uh, certainty about the present. And, you know, at one level, I think uh, we would do well not to be too harsh with Martha, all right? Because who knows that things don't make a whole lot of sense in the middle of a story. Isn't that right? You get in the middle of something and there's all these loose ends. You don't know what they mean. You don't know how they're going to tie together. She doesn't know that uh, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, Paul Miller, one of my favorite authors, makes this statement uh, in one of his books. He says, often when you think everything has gone wrong, it's just that you're in the middle of a story. Because uh, stories don't all make sense in the middle. They make sense at the end. The other thing that's going on here for Mary and Martha is they don't really understand who's standing in front of them. Uh, Their view of Jesus wasn't quite there. It was kind of different because it's God in the present. But you can see in my particular story, my my view of who God was was a bit twisted. And and not in like an evil way. it It was incomplete. I wasn't seeing God clearly. And I think you actually see this In John chapter 11, when Mary and Martha interact with Jesus, they just 
they get a good piece of him, but there's a whole lot of him that they don't get. And uh, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus is going to clarify who he is. So I want to start this morning by, by looking at John chapter 11. We're going to read the, uh, the section out of John chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love for you to turn to those now. John chapter 11, we're going to start at verse 32. We're going to start, this is just after uh, Jesus has had the conversation with Martha. Martha goes and uh, she gets Mary. Uh, Jesus has said to Martha at some point that uh, I'd like to see Mary and so Martha brings Jesus out. Uh, uh, Martha brings Mary out to see Jesus, I should say. So John chapter 11, verse 32. <clears throat> when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And the favourite Bible verse of every kid under the age of 15. Jesus wept. Uh, the easiest one to memorise. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he you open the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved came to the tomb it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance take away the stone he said the lord said martha the sister of the dead man by this time there is a bad odor for he has been there four days then jesus said did i not tell you that if you believe you'll see the glory of god so they took away the stone then jesus looked up and said father i thank you that you've heard me I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. <laughs> uh, dead people obey the voice of Jesus. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I want to start this morning by uh, quickly uh, looking at emotions. Um, just, just before we dive into this passage, because what we actually see in this passage is a, a whole bunch of emotions. And, uh, and I just want to say, uh, in Australian culture in general, emotions haven't always been given a fair run. And I'm not just talking about being emotional, I'm talking about all emotions. Um, Australia's of uh, British extraction... And, uh, and some variety of stoicism has kind of been the order of the day, you know, it's the stiff upper lip, don't admit that you're bothered or you're emotional about anything because emotions are weak. You have to be tough, you have to keep things flat and level with everything. That's kind of where we've kind of come from. And, and the interesting thing is culturally, things are starting to shift. I don't know whether you've noticed it now, but it's it's pretty difficult to find a sportsman uh, in particular on the TV being interviewed about something important that doesn't cry these days, right? That's interesting, isn't it? Like that's a really significant shift for us. Um, but I still think we've got this thing where, where emotions are to be avoided. Um, I remember uh, in my days in the church, and it just wasn't in uh, my father's church, but in my days in the church, there was, there was a bunch of teaching about emotions um, and, and mostly it was you need to hold to the truth that's what you need to do um, you, 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 uh, you learn about fact faith 
and feelings. And, and does anyone, is there anyone that's ever seen this train before? Yeah, it's the fact, faith and feeling train and you've got to keep them in that order. You don't get the caboose at the end at the front because then everything kind of goes out of whack and there's a lot of helpfulness about this uh, kind of teaching. But underneath it, I think, was the idea that, at least this is the way I received it, is that emotions are untrustworthy and deceptive and you need to be careful. Which, which at some level, I think, is accurate and it's actually true. But the difficulty, and maybe, maybe it was just me, but the difficulty was that along the way, I just got this perception that emotions were problematic. That they're not uh, helpful, we should try and avoid them as much as we possibly can. We needed to live by the truth and the facts. The difficulty is that we actually forgot about verses like this one, uh, which talk about God commanding a kind of emotional response in us. Uh, look at this one. Um, because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. <laughs> right? This, boy, this verse here is Moses uh, giving a warning to the people about the fact that it's not just about serving God, you better be happy about it, right? You've got to be happy about it because it actually does God no justice and it gives God no glory for someone to grimly and sadly and depressingly serve the Lord. And, and what you actually notice through the Scriptures is that God commands emotions all over the place. And, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because... You know, Ange and I have been married for um, 23 years this year. And uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and, and I'll tell you something, it, it would not be a win for me to go home to my wife and say, I love you, but I have no feelings for you. True? There ought to be feelings, there ought to be emotions that are attached to the love. And, and, and truth and emotions uh, need to run together. Now... Those who've been around Restoration Church for a while know I'm setting out for something. And it's kind of true. That's what I'm doing. Um, I want to ask you this question. When it comes to emotions, what does it look like to be fully alive in a fallen world? Right? When it comes to emotions, what does it look like to be fully alive in a fallen world? Or, here's another way to put it in the vernacular of Restoration Church. When it comes to emotions, what does it look like to be truly human in a fallen world? Now, one of the answers that I give to people is your life will look like the Psalms, all right? Your life will look like the Psalms. And if you, if you look at the Psalms, you will see this vast array of emotions in the Psalms, all right? Now, you instinctively could go, well, that's because they're soft, right? If you're a hard guy this morning, it's because the psalm writers are soft, right? It's like, well, I think you're going to struggle with making that accusation of King David and his mighty men that actually went to war and just slaughtered so many people that God said, you can't build the temple because there's been too much blood on your hands, right? He wrote so many of the psalms. Um, and, and I would just ask you, does your life have a psalmic shape to it when it comes to emotions? Uh, do you have the array of emotions that you see in the Psalms? And I'm, I know there's variations in the levels and the ways that people experience emotions and communicate emotions, but in a fallen world, 
there are appropriate emotions in, a, in different circumstances, right? I want to read you a section out of Winston Smith and Alastair Groves' book uh, on emotions. A great book, really good one to read if you want to follow up on some of this stuff. But here's, here's some interesting stuff uh, they say. <clears throat> the basic reason we need negative, unpleasant emotions is that we live in a fallen world. God made us to respond to things as they actually are. Human beings should be distressed by what is distressing, horrified by violence and abuse, deeply concerned, we'd call it anxious about the possibility of injury to someone or something we love, angry at arrogant injustices, to not feel grief when someone we love dies, to not feel discouragement when we find ourselves falling into the same pattern of sin yet again, to not be upset when our children lie or hurt each other would be wrong. You see that? Now, I've sat with people in a pastoral sense who have had tragic things happen to them and they, they sit there and they're, they're like deadpan and they, they feel nothing about it. And, you know, from my point of view, I go, there's something wrong here because that is a really, really tragic thing that happened to you and if you don't have a response to that that's in keeping with what you've actually seen, with the tragedy of what's happened to you, then I think you've actually got a problem. They go on to say this, you were made in the image of God himself and that means you're made to see the world as he sees it, to respond as he responds, to hate what he hates and to be bothered by what brings him displeasure. Is that you? You're meant to see things on the news and be bothered by it. You know, when we see so much of the news and we see so much of the tragedy that just gets sent to our pockets on our phones and it means nothing to us, that's, that's a problem. That's a problem. But I want to suggest to you that uh, what I said before about one way to work out what it is like to be truly human or be fully alive in a fallen world is to look at the Psalms. I think there's even uh, something that's even better. You could actually go to the true human himself, Jesus. And that's uh, what we're going to do now. We're going to dive into this section in John and look at some of Jesus' emotions. We're going to see his tears and his anger. If you have a look at uh, one particular part... <clears throat> of the text today you can see in beige there the um the, the two expressions or two different places where jesus's emotions are recorded i want to look at the second one first uh, because the uh, the first one's going to lead into my last point and uh, here it is uh, the shortest verse in the bible uh, jesus wept now the big question uh, at this point and uh, in some ways, the big question for anyone who's crying, who's observing it, I should say, is uh, what are they crying about? Uh, what is Jesus crying about? What do you think? <clears throat> now, you need to know there's lots of different um, takes on what Jesus is, is crying about. And um, I'm going to tell you what I think he's crying about and I think it comes from the context what's just happened well what's just happened is Mary's shown up she's fallen at Jesus's feet said if you'd been here my brother wouldn't have died and she's crying and everyone that came with her is crying too 
Here's what I think Jesus is crying about. Jesus is crying because he loves Mary, Martha and Lazarus and something tragic has happened to them. That's what I think he's crying about. Um, look, look at the context. Lazarus has just died. Jesus has just walked into this sad situation. And what happens when Jesus gets to this sad situation? He gets pulled into it. He gets pulled into what's happening for the people in that particular situation. He gets a, affected by it. Why does Jesus get pulled into it? Because that's what happens when you love someone. You get pulled inside it. I remember a mate of mine a number of years ago <clears throat> telling me the story of his father. His father was a godly, godly man and um, he was a tough German. And um, he went through a 10-year uh, part of his life where he, uh, he had heart bypass surgery, he fell off a ladder and broke his back. He had multiple tumours in his body and his son said to me, he goes, my dad never ever let on how much pain he was in until the day that he went to his house. And, and the son went to the house like sons normally do to get some food. All right, I'm not even making this up. He went there to get food and he got into the house and his dad didn't know that he was in the house. And so the son's gone in to go to the fridge and, and he can hear his dad groaning in pain, trying to move in the bedroom. And, and he said, this, this uh, mate of mine, he said to me, he goes, it was like I was wired into my dad and every groan that he had was like an electric shock that went through my body. Why was it like that for him? Because he loved his dad. That's, that's just what it is. When you love someone, you get, you get, you get pulled into the situation. You, you're so closely connected to them that their wins affect you and their losses and their pains affect you as well. And this is what it's like with Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's wired in with you in your pain? I, I think this is what's going on. He, he shows up and he's feeling the shocks with Mary. He's feeling the shocks with Martha. He's feeling the shock of the situation. Why does this happen? Because he's a loving person. That's why it happens. Now, if you go through Scripture, you will see this idea running the whole way through Scripture. I'm going to put three verses up on the screen here that, that cash this out. Here's the first one, Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And the English word compassion comes from the Latin word compati. And do you know what it means? It means to suffer with. That's what compassion is. God is wired into our suffering with us. And it's not just when someone else has victimised us, it's when you victimise yourself. When you do things that bring suffering and trouble and pain upon you, He has compassion for you. Can you believe it? Can you? You look at the next one in uh, Isaiah 63. In all their distressed, distress... He too was distressed and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Can you believe it? About you? Or is it just about everyone else? 
God has compassion and is distressed and is widened everyone else's pain but not yours. I've had the, um, the great honour of preaching is you get to sit in scripture and wrestle with stuff that you're preaching about before you get to it and uh, that's been a question I've been asking myself this week. Where, where are the places where I'm in trouble where I think I'm on my own? Can I believe that he would be distressed when I'm distressed? And the last one, Romans 12 verse 15. I think Jesus is doing Romans 12 15 par excellence, isn't he? Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. <clears throat> Love weeps with people in their distress. It's just the way that it happens. Now, there's a pushback at this point in time, and I'm anticipating some of you are thinking this right now. Um, and it's, it's this question here, why does Jesus cry when he knows what he's about to do? Right? Why does he cry when he knows what he's about to do? And here's, here's one of my answers. I'm going to give you a few here. Here's one of my answers, because his crying isn't about the situation. His crying's about the people. And, and I think one of the things that you can see in this passage is that Jesus cries with the people and he gets angry about the situation. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And, and I want to say this to you, and I'll put it up on the screen. If God's compassion for us aborted whenever something good was going to come from something bad, then he would never be compassionate. Do you see that? Because he promises to bring good out of everything. And if you say God's got a different plan and he's going to bring something good out of it he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and so he doesn't need to be compassionate there's never going to be a time when he'll be compassionate with you because he promises to bring good out of every single bad thing that happens to you but that's not how God rolls and it's hard to believe you know Jesus crying here is a statement about how God is with his people he's with you you'd never cry alone do you believe that? You never shake alone. You never, you never get stuck in anxiety alone. You've got someone who's wired in with you. This kind of crying is about love. It's about what love does. You get pulled into the situation of the other person. This is what it's like to be truly human. You're a loving person and you're wired into the suffering of others. Now... This is a very personal message today, right? I'm going to go there again. I, I want to talk about crying for a minute, all right? Um, and uh, we, we have this reputation um, amongst some that Restoration Church is the crying church, all right? And I, I have been taking leadership in that over the last uh, number of weeks. Uh, many of you have noticed probably that I've been pretty emotional for just about every Sunday that I've preached this year. Uh, either I've cried or I've been close to it. I've had conversations with my boys and I've said to them, I'm not going to cry this week. And, and then I'm just trying to hold it in because uh, like you can't cry every week. It's, it's not, that's not a cool thing for a preacher to like cry every week, right? It's like, and, and you probably, maybe you've been a visitor and he's going, what on earth is going on in this place? And it's, we joked last week about it being the stage because you get up here and, and then you start feeling like you're going to cry. Um, now, you may not believe this, all right? You may not believe this, 
but I used to be a very cold individual, all right? This is absolutely the case. I, I was quite heartless. Um, my sermons were direct. I told people to get their act together. I remember way, way back, one of the early sermons that I preached, an elder of the church came up to me and he said, you really bashed me around the head then, Peter. And that was, that was kind of what it was. Uh, I remember in my uh, early 20s, doing a spiritual gifts survey, right? And uh, most of my scores are somewhere between 20 and 27 and compassion was about two, right? I- I'm not even making it up. It actually was. Compassion was like dead, motherless last, okay? And, and as a side note, uh, don't ever employ a pastor whose compassion runs at about two, right? That's, that's probably not going to go well. Anyone who knows me from way back at that, point in time would have seen that in me and and if you want to you can ask Angela about it and she'll probably have some version of yay and amen that is true Uh, he actually was like that but I'll tell you something uh, at some point in time I started to warm up I don't know when that was Um, compassion started to grow I I can't even point to a time when it started to grow I I ended up doing some counselling training and it grew even more and this change happened in me of being compassionate. <laughs> um, and and my, uh, the principal, I, uh, I taught at a school in town here, a Christian school in town here for about 18 years and, and uh, my principal, uh, toward the end of my time there, he said to me, he goes, you know, he goes, I never thought that you would ever be a counsellor. Right. Um, but here I am right and almost cried every week that I've been preaching this year and and I'll tell you something uh, I have never cried as much as I do now Um, it's not uncommon for me to sit doing pastoral care or counseling with someone and to quietly cry while I'm listening to someone talk about something it's not uncommon for me to sit uh, and listen to someone talk about something that's happened to them and and get really angry and fire up about um, what I hear them talking about their life. Uh, I I can get pretty uh, emotional when I see my kids do something, or when I see God at work in them. And I cry when I preach, because what I'm saying to you means so much to me, and it sits just below the surface. See, I'm starting to get emotional now. It seems like the older I get, the more I'm crying why that's a good question am i just turning into a senile old guy that just cries all the time maybe maybe but i don't think so at least i hope not i i think i'm becoming a more loving person i know it's weird to for someone to talk about themselves like that but i think i'm just becoming a more loving person And, and honestly and this is a weird thing to say and you can laugh about this if you want as far as I can tell I'm the most loving version of Peter that's ever existed all right I'm not saying that there isn't work to go but I'm the most loving person the most loving version of Peter you happy about that yeah okay it's good to be with the loving version but it isn't just crying for me it's actually a whole array of emotions you know God's making me come alive and so stuff just matters to me 
sometimes people say things that, and I've sat with some of you, sometimes people... Sometimes people sit and they tell me what other people have done to them and I say things I'll never say anywhere else. I use words that I wouldn't say. I swear sometimes, right? And I'm not saying that it's okay to swear, right? But you can just see, like, there was a time where there was this theological fatalism way back and God's had me on this journey of bringing me alive and what it means is it makes me alive to everything that's going on around the place. And that's what Jesus is doing with you. He's making you alive to everything that's going on. So you might cry more, but you'll probably get angry more too. And you'll get disappointed more than you used to get disappointed. Because that's what it's like to live in a fallen world. And I want to say to you that at Restoration Church, we've got a place for emotion. And we know that emotions can be tricky to handle sometimes, but but we we have a place for it and it's okay to cry. And it's also okay not to cry. It's like, I don't want us to ever get to the point where it's like, oh, they're crying, so the Holy Spirit must be at work, right? They might just have a blister. I don't know, just saying. That wasn't in my script. You know, if you are not a crier, that's fine, right? You just need to know there's a few other people that might. And uh, in particular, the pastors at the church here will from time to time. And we might even quote John 11.35 as a defence of our position. Uh, But don't feel any pressure. You know, I I think, uh, I'll just say to you, I mean, I don't know what you do when... Someone said to me a while ago, they go, no one likes a crying pastor. And it's like, oh, okay, all right. No, no, it wasn't someone in church here, it was someone outside of the church. Um, but you know something, I, no, let me just say this to you. If you've got pastors that, um, that run reasonably close to um, their emotions like that, that, that's a good pastor, isn't it? Is it? That's someone you could go to and actually sit down with them and tell them about the crap that's going on in your life. I mean, isn't that the thing? Like we all go through stuff and it's like... I would want to sit down with someone who was like Jesus and when he came and he saw the thing that I'm in, he would sit there and he would cry with me. It's not the only thing he does. But that's what he does, right? See, the sign that you're becoming truly human is that you grow in having emotions that correspond to the situations that you're in. And we want you to come alive. That's what we want. And last week, if, for those who are here, Phil and Samara came up and, um, and uh, I just interviewed them and they shared a little bit of their story of God bringing them alive. And, and, you know, Phil talked about having an apathy box and he was very emotional on stage. It's like I'm, I was standing here going, well, that's not very apathetic, right? Apathy's like not caring. That's not very apathetic. God's bringing him alive. God's bringing Samara alive and, and you just get wired into the stuff that's going on around you. I want to close this point by looking at the other expression of emotions um, that we see in Jesus. Actually seen in verse 33 and 38. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Once again... Jesus, once again, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. There's two categories here that you can see. Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and trouble. 
Now, this is interesting, right? Because the first uh, bit there, deeply moved in spirit, comes from a Greek word which suggests anger, outrage, and emotional indignation. Uh, in animals, it kind of has a, the sense of a snorting horse. Um, there's, other, there's a couple of other times in the, in the Gospels where this Greek word is used and uh, it has a connotation of, in, of uh, uh, instruction and, and kind of stitched together with that is this idea of being troubled. Uh, being troubled is about being disturbed, stirred up, unsettled. Now, the first one there that uh, Jesus is deeply moved um, is heavily debated. It's a massive debate by theologians about what what is this focused at? Um, you know, there's, there's a, a fair bit of clarity about the meaning of the word, but the larger question is, is who or what is this anger, um, this outrage, this indignation, this, this corrective, uh, intense instruction directed toward? Um, and herein lies the problem. Some see... Some see that Jesus' anger and indignation and intense corrective instruction is actually aimed at Mary and Martha and the other people weeping there. Um, But in my view, that just presents a whole bunch of problems for us in this scene. Um, Jesus showing up and being angry instead of crying with them, that's a bit of a problem. Um, it, it becomes really hard to reconcile that with the rest of Scripture. You've got other stories in the Gospels where there is unbelief in a much more hardened sense than this, and Jesus is getting angry about that as well. But with Mary, Martha and Lazarus, you've got people that he's really close to who love him, and, and you see the interaction with Martha, and you go, Martha kind of, she's doing okay. She's not kind of in unbelief, but she doesn't see Jesus clearly, but, but um, the way that she needs to see him, so it just, it's, it's, I can't see it. I can't see that Jesus is angry with Mary and Martha and those who are crying. It might have been a portion of the Jews who um, had unbelief, and you can see that in, in one of the questions that's asked there. But here's, here's what I think uh, Jesus is doing. Remember I said to you before that Jesus cries with the people and he gets angry at the situation. Jesus cries with those who are crying and he is angry and snorts at death with a readiness to correct it. That's what I think is going on. Imagine, uh, John chapter 1 tells us it was through Jesus that the whole world was made. He made it all good and it all got corrupted and, and destroyed by sin and now it's in this state of chaos and disorder. You know, you see in John's gospel that Jesus is coming to destroy the works of the devil, to reverse the curse He's the one that Genesis 3.15 says is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And so Jesus comes into this scene and it's in disarray. It's in disarray because death has done its work. Lazarus is in the tomb and he's rotting as far as everyone else is concerned. Mary and Martha are bummed about it and there's all these other people crying about it who love them. It's a mess. (laughs) And I think what's going on is Jesus shows up in here and he fires up and he's going to do something about it. That's what I think is going on. This is the way B.B. Warfield puts it. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, the devil, and whom he has come into the world to destroy, 
His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb. In Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. Do you see it? The rising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed it is presented throughout the whole narrative, a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. Isn't that good? That's what I think is going on. That's what's going on. And, and as that happens, as that happens, this takes us naturally to the last point today, and that's Jesus teaching who he is. I want to say to you that uh, you need to know something about death, that it's a wrecker in all its forms, not just in physical death. It takes something good and it corrupts it and it destroys it. And as it does its dastardly work, do you know what it does? It teaches people things which are not true. They're just not true. Here's what death teaches people. All kinds of death. Spiritual death, relational death, the death of hope. This is what death teaches, physical death. Death teaches people there is no hope. It teaches people that death is normal. It teaches people that despair makes sense. It teaches people that God either can't or won't do anything and that sin and the devil win. Jesus is going to correct that, right? He's going to correct all that it teaches. He's not just going to correct death. Um, The other thing he's going to do is he's going to reveal himself in the act of raising Lazarus from the dead. He's going to reveal himself so that Mary, Martha and everyone else standing there sees him more truly and more rightly. Here's the climax of the chapter. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, sister of the dead man. What was it, the King James Version? Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and he stinketh. Um, And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Listen to this. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. See, they need to see Jesus more clearly. There's a great uh, section in uh, Mark chapter 6 where Jesus looks out on the crowd and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. You know the next thing that he does? It says, and he taught them. You know, when, when people are scattered and they're like sheep without a shepherd, teaching needs to happen. And teaching shepherds people when it's done well. What else is Jesus up to <laughs> in this passage? He's not just about um, correcting death. He's, he's about helping people to see him truly. And it's what Jesus has actually been angling for the whole way along in John chapter 11. And, and you know what it says? It says that in the middle of death, the most important thing for you is to see Jesus. You hear that? In the middle of death, the most important thing is for you to see Jesus. And I'm not just talking about physical death, I'm talking about any death. And and some of you are in the middle of it right now, like you're in the middle of a place that just tastes like death. It's just like, man, there's just some stuff going on here that is not healthy and it's not good. 
And your main task, the most important task for you is to see Jesus. This is what you see the whole way through John chapter 11. Whether your dead one gets raised from the dead or not, whether whatever it is for you that has died comes back to life or not, your main thing that you need to focus on is, is seeing Jesus. This is more important than anything else. It's more important than anything else. But I want to say this to you. It's not all that he's up to. You need to know something else too. And I want you to hear this, that seeing Jesus isn't the only thing that matters to Jesus. Right? That's not the only thing that matters to him. You know why? Because Mary, Martha and Lazarus matter to him too. You know, not only is Jesus wanting to help them see him more clearly, but he brings about the resurrection of a dear friend and a brother. He wants them to see him truly, but he also wants to give back to them their brother. And, and so it, it's, it's obvious, but sometimes it doesn't get pointed out. I mean, at this point, Lazarus has had no lines in the play, right? But Lazarus matters to Jesus. And do you know what that means? That means that if Lazarus matters to Jesus, then you matter to Jesus, it's really important that you see him. That's the best thing that you could have, that you could see him clearly. But you matter to him and the stuff going on in your life matters to him. Psalm 116 verse 15. You know that one off by heart? If you're older, you should. Learn it. Precious in the sight of the Lord is what? Does anyone know? is the death of his saints, isn't it? Jesus is not just about people seeing him clearly. That is the main thing that he's about, but he's not only about that. Lazarus is precious to him. You're precious to him. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's correcting death. He corrects the lies of death. He teaches them all who he is. And he resurrects a dear brother and a friend. <laughs> Heck of an effort, right? That's a win on all fronts. When he had said this, Jesus called out, called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier? in the uh, chapter about Lazarus, when he was talking to his disciples before he got there, he says, I'm going to go and wake Lazarus up. Remember that? I'm going to go and wake Lazarus up. And his disciples go, oh, if he's, he's asleep, he'll wake up, he'll get better. And Jesus goes, no, he's, he's died. I'm going to wake him up. And what we've got here, do you know this is like a dream, isn't it? But it's actually a reverse dream because the dream... Um, that Jesus is waking Lazarus up was the nightmare of death, right? He calls him out. He comes out bound and all. It's amazing. He's going to do this to you one day if he doesn't come back first, if you love him. And do you know something? You're not going to sit around and, um, and wonder whether you're going to say yes or no when he calls you out, <laughs> right? You will just come out. That's what, that's what will happen. You, you will arise because the one who calls you is the resurrection and the life. That's who Jesus is. 
And it isn't just off in the future. Like this situation, there's a resurrection and a life from Jesus that happens now. He's unwinding things in you. He's bringing about life in the midst of death. Such that you will say one day, it was just a bad dream. Do you hear me? It was just a bad dream. I want to finish uh, this morning by reading a section from the end of The Lord of the Rings. And um, it's not in the movie, so if you haven't read the book, you, haven't, you don't know about this scene probably. Um, but let me tell you about The Lord of the Rings if you don't know. It's a story about a couple of hobbits, Frodo and Sam, uh, little creatures on a journey to destroy a powerful ring and the fires of Mount Doom. Uh, it's a treacherous journey in which they come up against countless forms of evil, way bigger and way more powerful than they are. It's a, uh, it's a wild, wild story. They get to, um, they get to Mount Doom and uh, a whole bunch of stuff happens and long story short, the, um, the ring falls into the fires of Mount Doom. They destroy the ring. The battle is won. The rest of all the battles that are going on, the back is broken now. And, and, and just the relief of it. But the interesting thing is that uh, Frodo and Sam, they get, they're stuck and they can't get out. They've made this journey to Mount Doom. They've destroyed the ring. Uh, but now they're stuck. There's lava flowing everywhere in the movie. You can, uh, you can see them. Uh, this is a shot from the movie, uh, lying on a rock there. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating because uh, when you read the book, they, uh, Sam and Frodo, they lie there and they talk to each other because they know they're doomed. I know they're absolutely doomed. And they, talk, they, they lie there and they talk about what life is like. And they try to distract each other from dying, the thoughts of dying. And eventually what happens is they pass out. And while they're passed out, Gandalf the white wizard comes with a bunch of eagles. It's a fantasy, right? He's flying on the eagles and, uh, and the eagles pick up Sam and Frodo and take them uh, somewhere. Uh, and I want to read the section um, after Sam wakes up where uh, Gandalf has taken him. When Sam awoke, when Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. But over him, gently swayed wide beechen bows. And through their young leaves, sunlight glimmered, green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet, mingled sense. I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. That's your contrast. He remembered that smell, the fragrance of Ithilien. Bless me, he mused, how long have I been asleep? For the sin had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank. And for a moment, and for the moment, all else between was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. I'm glad to wake. He sat up and he saw that Frodo was lying beside him. 
and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head and the other hand and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand and the third finger was missing. That was how the ring ended up in, in the fire by uh, Frodo losing his, his finger. Full memory flooded back and Sam cried aloud, It wasn't a dream! Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him, In the land of Ithilien, and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel, he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Listen to this, isn't this beautiful? Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf, and then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down, a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up. And laughing, he sprang from his bed. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, <laughs> it is. And Jesus is the one that brings that about. He is the one that will make everything sad come untrue. You get a down payment in this life and the fulfillment in the next and it isn't done remotely. He gets up close and personal with you. I'm going to read you a section from Isaiah. As I close. This is beautiful and if you... You need to uh, close your eyes and meditate on this as we go. This is stunning. This is the this is Isaiah's version of uh, Lord of the Rings. It's a much better one. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. It's a beautiful line, this next one, isn't it? The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. You... There's a day, there's a day where you, you will be with Jesus forever. And you won't even think about down here. It will, it will be like a bad dream. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people this is where you're going. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Can you imagine? No one weeps. Imagine being in a place where no one weeps forever. You don't and the people you love don't. This is powerful. Never again 
never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his years. Now what Isaiah is doing here is he's not saying that that there's going to be death there, but he's just, he's just comparing it to what people know. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labour in vain. Nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord. They and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy in my, in, on all my holy mountain. Jesus, you are a colossus of a figure. You won't be pigeonholed. Countless people have tried to nail you down. you refuse to be and uh, I'm just really glad for that because we need you to be the diverse character that you are we need you to be the one that sits with us and cries in our distress we need you to be the one that fires up and gets angry and rolls his sleeves up at death we need you to be the one that gives direction and focus to us by helping us to see you truly, by seeing the truth of you and so many more things. Jesus, you came to do all those things, but what we celebrate, what we remember, what we savour at this moment in the service is the way that you've come to die on the cross be everything that we need to sign off on every promise you've ever made so today God I pray that you'd help us to remember that thank you that you clear away our sins that you take them far from us so that we can be with you forever to laugh and dance and run and play.